Welcome to Kick-Ass Boomers, giving you the motivation and inspiration you need to make the most of your later years. Whether you're still in the planning stages or you're several years in, we'll share stories from boomers who refuse to act their age and continue to live a life inspired. Let them show you how being old can be new if you know what to do with your host, Terry Lorbeer. Hello and welcome to Kick-Ass Boomers. My guest today is Charlie Sheldon. Charlie was raised in New England, went to sea as a commercial fisherman, became a bureaucrat, retired, then returned to sea as a merchant sailor. When he is ashore, he writes, cooks, cleans house, and hikes in Olympic National Park. In 2012, at age 65, Charlie went back to sea as a merchant sailor with the Sailors Union of the Pacific for four years. He's lived near Seattle since 1990, and whenever he can, he hikes in Olympic National Park. Welcome, Charlie. How are you today? I'm fine. Nice to be here. I'm happy to have you. You're quite the outdoorsman, Charlie. You went back to sea at age 65. That is quite a feat since being at sea is a dangerous job, and yet you stayed for four years. Tell us what motivated you to go back to sea at age 65. Well, the simple and most direct answer is I had to keep working. And when you're 65 years old, it's hard to find work. And in the business I was in, which was port business, I'm not sure I could have found another job in that business because my last job saw me driven out of town because I got crossways with an elected commissioner. And you can't do that if you work for a public port authority. <laughs> and I, because I'd been to sea as a commercial fisherman when I was young, I had sea time. Mm-hmm. And I re-upped all that sea time. And I knew the guy who was a business agent for the Sailors Union of the Pacific. And uh, I contacted him. And I was able to go down to the hall. And after a few months, I, I got a posting and I shipped out. And my wife and I talked about it. And it's seemed like, I mean, it's kind of weird to go from being a executive director of a port to shipping rust on a container ship. But the truth is, I like manual work. And the other truth is I had to work. And it was tough work. You know, it's tough work. It wasn't as tough as fishing. Nothing's as tough as fishing. Oh, fishing's tough. Yeah, oh, fishing's tough. Fishing. Oh, my I, did, God. I did off Cape Cod in New England. But anyway, so that's why I did it. And when I did it for four years, I served on three different ships. Once I went to Cleveland for a few months, which was not on a ship, doing some stuff to, when a shipping, starting a shipping service, I had some time at home. I mean, I probably spent half my time at sea in those four years. But then when I got into my 70th year and I written these books in between these voyages, because you can't work on it right on a ship. It's much too much work. <laughs> well, I was, on mili- I was on military reserve ships. And then you had a little more time because they don't really go anywhere. They just kind of kept ready to go. But um. I started writing these books, and in my 70th year, I stopped and focused on trying to get these books out, which I've now done. Mm-hmm. Not been e- it's not been easy. But anyway, that's the answer to your question. I, I did it, and the other side of it, of course, is when I was a kid, in addition, I always wanted to write, I always wanted to go to sea. And, and the, the kid up the street had went to the Merchant Marine Academy. He was about six years older than me, and I always wondered about him. Wow. And, thought about. I wanted to do that. Well, actually, I'm kind of glad I didn't do it because I 
met people who'd been to merchant marine academies who were now officers on commercial ships and they all regretted never having time with their family, which is part yes. of it. It's a very tough life. Very for, tough um, life. It's tough, but it's real work. It's honest work. I mean, it's people shouldn't turn their nose up at whatever kind of work. As long as it's work, right? It's work, you know. And so I feel very lucky. We were lucky. I mean, some people think some people think they'll have a you know a bulb missing or something that I do something like this. But the truth is, it worked out really well for us. And and honestly gave me a lot of information, which I was able to integrate into my fiction, of course. I mean, that's the other thing of this is this, your experiences. You write about what you know. So, but really the simple answer to your question is I needed to keep working. And, you know, that's the challenge I think for boomers everywhere is that, you know, a lot of them have to keep working and it isn't very nice and it's difficult. And, you know, we're all trying to get by. And of course, if you the, the other thing, at least in my mind, is unless you have a clear knowledge that your health is going to end your life in a couple of years, you have to behave as if you're going to live to 100, even if you don't, because otherwise, if you don't, you're under and under. You're out of money, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. You, you so, gotta be, and that 30 years in retirement is you're going to need a lot of money to live that long. Yeah, and boomers right. have not, I mean, our former, our parents and all, most of them didn't live to that age. So they didn't have to plan that far ahead. But we really do because most of us, if we are somewhat healthy, will live to be 90 or 100, which is why I started the podcast. I can do my podcast until I'm sure in my 80s at least. So I figured it's a good thing for me to pivot because I'm also selling real estate right now part time. So I do that and the podcast and like boomers, we have to do that. You know, most of us don't have a pension anymore. Years ago, people had pensions. We don't have pensions. So you have Social Security and the money you saved. And most of us did not save enough. I didn't. Right, so right, right. There well, you I, go. And so, of course, with these books, I've written a lot of books, a number of books, and it's not a day job. But, you know, if these books, this latest series of books I did, I'm as best I could do. And I think they're good. And, you know, if they hit, then that's some additional income. And if they don't hit, well... I'm happy I spent my time this way, I guess. I exactly. You enjoyed writing. So you were telling me a little earlier that you've always wanted to write since you've been eight years old. So, right. And you didn't start writing till you were 40, correct? Well, that's not, that's not actually quite. not strictly true. I wrote right from the start. Mm -hmm. I wrote, I won a couple prizes in high school for short stories. Oh, good. I was fishing and I kept journals and I wanted to write a novel even in 1971 or two and but I realized when I started trying to write this novel that I just didn't have enough life experience to write anything. You know, I just wasn't, I just didn't, the way I do it, I need to see it. So I tried. And then when I was 40, and of course, when, and the other thing is when you're working, you know, unless you're really self-disciplined or you get up at five in the morning and write when your kids are asleep, or you come home at night and write when you should be playing with your kids and, you know, helping your wife, you know, it's hard to do a day job and write. But I decided when I was 40, another guy published a book and I saw his, it was about the fishing industry. And I, and I read the book and I thought, well, geez, I could do that. <laughs> and, you know, that was, that's not the good motive, but that was a motive. And then anyway, so that's why I started writing the story. And I knew a guy who published some books and he had an agent and I sent the manuscript to the agent mm -hmm. and she took me on. I mean, and later I found out that was like a miracle. And that so she, is a I miracle. Got, <laughs> right. And so I got... 
this was in 1987 or eight. I got the agent, Meg Rooley, and she was a good agent, Rotterson Agency in, in New York. Mm-hmm. And she found a buyer for my first book, Fat Chance, which is a caper about New York and not a serious book. And I thought, well, I'm set. <laughs> but then I wanted to write other know? stuff, right? So I'd written this book. So then I wrote another book about the fishing industry because I wanted to write about that. Mm-hmm. And Meg got pissed off because she thought, you know, you got a vehicle here. You got this character. You could have a series with this guy, Frank, and how he kind of unravels all these crimes. And I said, I don't want to do that. I want to write about this now. So she fired me eventually. Anyway, and I didn't realize at the time that because I was so afraid of getting trapped in a series, I think, which is unfair. Anyway, long story short, but I kept writing when I came out here to Seattle because because when I wrote the first book, this is the other important part of this. The vehicle, the process by which you write is really, for me, really important. Mm-hmm. You have to have a place to do it. You have to have a way to do it. Now, I'm basically a lazy, slothful, undisciplined person. If I sit down to write for four hours, I get intimidated by the four hours, and I don't do anything. Uh-huh. But when I was writing Fat Chance in New York, I was taking the train back and forth to Millington on the, as a commuter from I worked in the World Trade Center, Tower Number One, actually, and sixty uh, fourth floor. And <laughs> in fact, I used to climb the stairs in the Trade Center for exercise. And so I started writing Fat Chance by hand on the train going to and from work. Oh my for gosh! Thirty minutes at a time. And you know what happens if you do it? Even three days or five days a week at thirty minutes each way. Within four months, you have 80,000 words of a novel. Right. But when I moved to Seattle, I intentionally, I had to for reasons of house prices, but I found a place across Puget Sound in a place called Bainbridge Island, and I had to take the ferry to work. And so I rode on the ferry. And that was my vehicle, riding on the ferry, because it was a short time. Right. And any idiot could do it for 30 minutes. And when I'm actually writing a book, it only takes three or four months to write the first draft, but then it takes three years to get it right. Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so I use the fair, but, but then later, these last books that I've done, when I moved, I'd stopped riding a ferry and moved to Seattle. And uh, then I was in between trips at sea and I was home and my wife who Rand had been working and then she'd gone back to school and then the crash hit and she couldn't get a job for four years. And yes. anyway, it was pretty sketchy, but she was at work. So I had the house to myself. And then I found I could, I could actually write, I could write at home. And then when I was on these military ships, I couldn't write when I was on ships underway. There's no time, but the military ships, you had a little more time because you were mostly at the dock. And I ended up writing the third book or first half of the third book, on coffee break and after dinner, before I went to sleep, I just write a few. Anyway, I'm way off track here, but that's how, you know. <laughs> you got disciplined enough. It sounds like those short spurts are better for you. That works for you. Yeah, that doesn't work for everyone, but that's better for you. Yeah. That's better for me. But now after doing this for so many years and I've written nine novels for so many years, I know myself well enough to know that if I start to write, mm-hmm. I'll be able to do it. You know, I, a couple hours a day, I just kind of work along and I draw what I see and, and it happens. So that's, I can't even remember what your question was. <laughs> Here we are. about your tr- trilogy, the last three books, because they're all kind of related. So tell us a little bit about the background story and, you know, why you were so committed to that story. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. So I moved out here, Seattle in 1990. Mm-hmm. And 
I always wanted to be in the Northwest. My dad had worked in the logging woods out here in the 30s. And so I wanted to be in the Northwest. I always thought I'd be in the Northwest as a fisherman because I, I'd been a fisherman. But anyway, I came out and I got a job with the Port of Seattle, which is a public port authority. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they had to deal with is in Puget Sound and in Elliott Bay, you have these tribes which have treaty rights to fish. And so you have Native American gillnet fishermen fishing right in harbors where big ships are landing and discharging. Wow. So there's this huge potential conflict between these kids running and these young guys in 20-foot gillnet boats and these 900-foot container ships. And so I got really interested in that and spent almost all my whole time in Seattle, among other things. Mm-hmm. A lot of my time was spent working with two of the tribes, the Muckleshoot and Suquamish tribes, who had fish commissions and fishermen, to try to negotiate with them. How do we set up a system so we can minimize conflicts between the fishermen and the ships? Very difficult. Very interesting. So in order to do that, I felt, well, okay, if I'm going to do this, I tried to learn as much as I could about the history of the treaties and everything. I learned as much as I could. And then, of course, meeting with everybody, I talked to people and got to know some people and I think learned a little bit about the culture. And what I learned was sort of an aside was that almost all the first people in the Americas, all of them, have this belief that they've always been here. If you tell someone who's from here that, oh, yeah, you came over in the Bering Land Bridge 12,000 years ago, what you're really telling them is that among the community of peoples on Earth, you're essentially the most recent. Right. You know, and that's an insult. Right. I mean, that's an insult. And so, and I, I get that. So I had this idea, well, could that old legend be true? And then I thought, because all the scientific information says, no, no, kilometers arose in Africa and spread over the world and got here last and everything. So I thought, could that be true? And then I thought, well, how could it be true? Right. And then I thought, is there some way you could write a story that somehow gently suggests this? How do you do that? So that was one thread. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then I had this other thread, which was I did all this hiking in the Olympics. I still do. Mm-hmm. And I love it there. I love that. I love that place. And I wanted to write something that celebrated that place and the magic of that place. So that was another thing I wanted to do. And then the third thing I wanted to write about something more serious than just a caper said about a crime, right? I wanted to write about family and how young people find a sense of home. And I, and I ended up with this idea, I want to write something about to show how there was this telling of stories that actually made us modern humans and how the, there's power in old legends that may have truth in today. And I wanted to write something about how a young person can find their power in an impossible way Hmm. and originally the coming of age essentially and originally the idea was i was going to use a young boy because if you're out in the woods and set in the woods i'm enough of a sexist you think well it's more likely a boy will be doing that than a girl right right (laughs) my my wife pointed out to me very clearly in my early books you know your your women are shallow they aren't they aren't believable you ought to do something with, with the women are believable that's funny no, she's right. She was she right. right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So I thought, okay, so what I did was, and I'm lucky, I was lucky this way because I knew some people like this. My One of my kids 
had some friends who were, they were boys, but they had some girlfriends who one of the girls, she was a runaway. She had a really tough time and she was living at 13. She was living alone in Portland, Oregon, and everybody, the parents thought she was going to die. I mean, it's hard enough to have a troubled son, but those among us who have troubled daughters are in for a special kind of fear. Anyway, so I thought, okay, why don't I, so I'll, because Rand had said your women are weak. So, <laughs> so I'm going to write some stories where the women are all strong. And so I wrote this story about this ornery 13 year old girl who appears on this guy's doorstep one day and announces she's his granddaughter. And he doesn't even know he has a granddaughter because he'd gotten divorced from his wife and his daughter had gone away and he didn't know. And there, he and his friends, who are both Native American, father and daughter, he's a merchant sailor and she's a tribal archaeologist. They're about to go on a hike into the Olympics to visit his grandfather's grave because he died mm -hmm. up there in the 60s. Right. And they don't know what to do with this girl, so they bring her with them. Wow. <laughs> and she's, she hates it. You know, she's, God, she hates it. And the second day out, she goes up the trail and comes back with a drawing of a, a bear. And the people say, well, that's a really good drawing, Sarah, but it's not quite accurate. No bear looks like that. But then the tribal archaeologist later says to her father at the campfire, you know, Sarah actually drew just what she saw because what she drew was not a black bear. It was a short-faced bear. And William, her father, says, I never heard of a short-faced bear. And she says, that's right, because they went extinct 12,000 years ago. Oh, oh. So, and then two days later, because they don't believe her, Sarah, she gets pissed off, and then she disappears. Oh. And that's when the story begins, okay? So the story, the story's about these people who go in the park, and there's a mining company that wants to mine in the park, and there's magic realism in the stories, which is this sighting of this bear and that's a literary tradition where everything's normal but there's one or two things that are not normal mm -hmm. and the south americans develop this isabella yendi does this she's brilliant at it and some readers can't go there very few mm -hmm. but other readers love it anyway <laughs> and you know some readers will think oh that's just a dream or they'll think no that's a memory or they'll think no it actually happened and i'm deliberate i don't you can decide whatever you want, as long as you like the right. story. Yeah, exactly. That was the first story. But then when I wrote the first story, I had a different frame. The frame I had was like Joseph Conrad's frame in Heart of Darkness, which is a bunch of men, because this was written in the 19th century, but a bunch of men are going out to wait for the tide on a pilot boat before they go to a ship. And while they're on the pilot boat waiting for the tide, this guy tells this story about Kurtz and Africa and Heart of Darkness. So the frame is some people telling a story. My frame in my original story, Strongheart, was a lifeboat crashes ashore on Haida Gwaii off Canada, and William, who's a sailor, who was born in Haida Gwaii, but then ran away, they're on this storm-bound shore, and there's no way in the winter, and they've got to hike for help, and they can't go until the weather breaks. So he's told to tell a story while they're waiting to keep him sane. And he tells the story about the previous summer with this girl and this bear. But then when I tried to sell that, you know, it was too complicated. And I, you know, that's another four episodes if you want to hear about that. But <laughs> what I did is I stripped away the frame. So it was just the story of the girl and these people going into the park that summer. That's Strongheart, the first book. But I had... 
all these chapters of the lifeboat crashing ashore. And so I said, well, okay, how did it crash ashore? And what happened to the ship that made it crash ashore? And then what happened? By now I'm on a ship and no, I'm in Cleveland working on the shipping thing. And so I start writing a story using those chapters. And that became the second book in the series, Adrift, which is when the ship catches fire and the lifeboats disappear and they're trying to find the missing sailors. And meanwhile, the people back in the Olympics are fighting with the mining company and trying to rescue their family members and everything. That's the second story. And then the third story, Totem, is set the following summer back in the park, generally some of the same people, back in the wilderness with the fight with the mining company and all these weird animals appear and their mysterious elk kills and this legend about maybe there's a place to find what really happened. And so that's the third story. But I finally finished it. it took 11 years, but I've got oh, the, wow. the series is finished in Totem, the third one. Strongheart came out in 2017 and Drift came out in 2018. And Totem, you can actually order Totem now from Amazon or bookstores, but it's actually being launched October 29th. Okay. Okay. So you can do a pre-order so that as soon as it comes out. No, you can. Oh, they sent, they'll mail it to you right away. Oh, okay. Here it is. There it is. They'll mail it to you right away. Wow. And that's another thick book. That's a really thick book. How many pages? Well, the first two, Strongheart was, is about 65 or 70,000 words. It's 200 and I think it's 246 pages. That's not bad. Adrift is 300 and 40 pages. It's a little longer. Odom is uh, 550 pages. Ooh, that's a long it's book. 135,000 words. It's really two books mm-hmm. in one. The first half of the book I wrote in 2015, mm-hmm. I knew there was another book and I thought I'd have several books in a series. And I thought, no, they're not very successful. Let's just get it done. And then I had, a, I had an idea about how it might go that I discarded. But then I wrote the second half of totem in like 2018 and 2019 here in Tacoma and mm-hmm. they merged them together and I thought you know maybe it's one big book it's a big story it's a complicated story it has lots of levels and layers but people seem to really like it. I just got a review from Kirkus Kirkus review of totem that's I mean you if I wanted to design the perfect review that's it so they really liked it so that was great wow yeah, and you know what? Baby boomers love to read. We have time to read. So for us, not a big deal. And even if you only read a couple pages a day, eventually you'll get through the book. But it sounds exciting, like you're going to want to keep going. Again, I use a baseball analogy that, you know, if you're a 300 hitter, that means that three times out of 10, you get a hit. And that makes you one of the best in the league, right? Yeah. But if you're a writer, if three people out of 10 like your book, you're a 300 hitter. Oh, wow. I I didn't realize that. If you think of it that way. And the truth Mm -hmm. is, I don't know. Generally, in my work, I think 80% of the people who pick the books up start reading. About about 20% of those, you know, know, anyway, if half the people like, let me put this another way. The goal I have as a writer is that you, the reader, fall into the book. In other words, that you... You're there. And when the book ends, if I really, my highest definition of success, if the book's over, the reader is unhappy the book's over, and the, the reader's provoked to be wondering, could that really have happened? Could that be true? Well, what about this? I mean, where did he learn that? That's the biggest success. And I've had that. And it's interesting that 
which Rand, Rand is, I think, happy with my wife. But, you know, Rand is giving these books to her friends and her friends really like it, you know, and, and even the sea story, which you'd think women wouldn't get excited about, they like it because they're really character driven. They're really not. One of, one of the reasons, by the way, that I, I like, I write about being in the woods or being at sea, in addition to the fact that I've been there and so I feel I can describe it, because again, I write what I see. The other thing which is really important is even today, if you're at sea or you're in the forest, it's a little bit timeless. You're not tied to the latest technology. Meaning if you write a book on today's technology, five years from now, who's going to read it? Because it'll be outdated. True, true. So I want something that's more timeless. And I, because I think we humans, we haven't changed our nature in 100,000 years. We're still as noble and vicious as we ever were. And we have this idea that all this technological development has somehow made us different too. And it hasn't. I wanted to write in a setting that let me be more timeless so someone could pick the book up in 20 years and still enjoy it. You right. know what I mean? It's a story. It's kind of the story exactly. you tell around the campfire. Exactly. And people love stories. We do. And that's so, the whole, the whole yeah. point is that's, and you make a good point. My, my argument is that it was the telling of stories around campfire that made us modern human beings because we could carry culture and learning through stories. Right. My books are, you know, William's telling the story of what happened with Sarah in a drift. Sarah has this adventure that's impossible in the first story where she either has a vision or a memory or she actually goes somewhere that's, you know, so it's just a completely different world. And then William has a similar thing happen to him. And then another woman, Lori, has a similar. So I have these layers of Nice. Today, and then this other time and, right. and they pick up skills in this other time that happens that helps today. And so it's all kind of at the end, it's Chief Seattle. And this is in the book Totem, leader of the Totem book. Chief Seattle made a statement. He said, there is no death. There is only a change of worlds. And that that's what's in the story. And that's a little bit what's going on here. And part of this is. If you want to, you know, you'd want the story to be a story. So mm -hmm. you, the reader, feel there and gripped and you're you're satisfied that you spent, the, you know, you, you know, that's important. Right. But if along the way you carry out some, you carry, well, I learned something or I'm kind of curious about this or maybe this is right. That's great because that just enriches the story. But if you write the story to generate those questions, then you're just writing a political pamphlet. And no one's going to want to read it. Right, right. No, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, and our whole ancestry has been about stories. Everything is a story yep. Yep. and we need to pass down stories. So, and I think when you read a book, you want to get out of your own life and get into somebody else's. So this is the thing, like I don't go hiking on an Olympic national park, but if I read the book, I feel like I'm there. Right. If it's written right. Right. If, right. If it's, if it's written right. And I, I mean, I have a very spare style, actually, but I try to describe what I see. Mm -hmm. But I'm very intentional. I don't over-describe it, as some writers do, because I think each reader will fill in the blanks the way they want to. Yes, right? exactly. And yep. so it, William, one of my characters, is a big, lumbering member of the Haida Nation. I mean, he was born 
Haida, but then he was taken away at eight to go to the government school in Kamloops. You know, that school that just, they just found that all those buried kids that had died that hadn't heard about that. Yeah. Well, that's where he's gone. I wrote this 10 years ago and that school is is still running until 1970, I think. Anyway. And then he runs to the U S so I'm not talking about the Haida tribe. He he's Haida, but I, I say there's three things about him. He's big. He has a big jaw and he has one wandering eye. Hmm. That's the only description, but people will fill that in however they want. Absolutely, right? yeah. Right? And then they have a very vivid picture the way they want to see. Some have has lots of hair, some they don't. So if you give enough signals so the reader can picture it and it's consistent with what I see, I guess, then it's successful. Yeah. You know, if, if I try to describe something for you and you know it and it's wrong, mm-hmm. I lose you. Right. Right. I lose you for the whole book. Right. That's true. And you want the reader to be part of the story, feel like, you know, they're at least emotionally invested in it and they want to read more. They want to learn more about the characters. They feel compelled to be like someone in the story. It's all part of the reading experience. You kind of almost feel like you're in with the other people when you're reading. That's important. And the the other thing I do, which is not so much in Strongheart, which is mostly written from either Williams or Sarah's point of view. Okay. The other two books have a very different structure, which is there are four or five points of view, different characters. And the way that stories are structured is that the time is linear. You start on day one and it goes linearly. But as you move along this timeline, different people see what's happening. So when the drift starts, Steve, the captain wakes up in his cabin and the ship's on fire. Right. And then the next chapter is this woman on Port Angeles who runs an old tugboat company that's just about broke smells money on the wind and she's thinking something's wrong. Right. 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 And then the next one is, you know, William in the lifeboat figuring out what the hell is going to happen to us. And you're seeing the story happen through different characters. Right which is done a few times, but the other piece is isn't. So there isn't really a main character. There are groups of characters telling the same story. And then the other thing that you have to do to, to have this work, I think, is each character needs their own arc of challenge and resolution. Right. Right. Or else you're not, if the character's just there to t- move the story along, I'm going to lose you. So in the case of, again, back to the drift, Steve, the captain, one reason he sails is he has a disabled son who's institutionalized and it costs a lot of money to keep him there. So he's doing this and then his ship gets lost and he might lose his license. So his challenge Mm -hmm. is, you know, what am I going to do about my kid? Right. Right. And then you've got Louise, who's this tugboat, she and Larry own this tugboat company and they're nearly broke and she thinks Larry's having an affair. (laughs) <laughs> right. And so she's really pissed off at him, but they got to go try to get the ship because otherwise they're broke. Right. right? So oh my gosh. And then I got uh, Myra, Myra, who's William's daughter. She's back on the peninsula trying to fight this mining company for the tribe. And she, her father's missing. And what the hell is she going to do? She can't do her job because she's with her about, her about her dad. And if I'm successful, and I think I am. Yeah. Hopefully you, the reader, when, when you get to that character, you know, because that character has, an arc of procedure, 
hopefully you're interested in what happens with that character. Right. You want to know, you want to know whether they're successful or not. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of Peyton Place. Remember way back in the seventies, I think it was, they had that TV show Peyton Place and it was the lives of everybody in the town. And this one was doing that. And this one was the good guy. And that one was the bad guy who was cheating with who, but it, we were fascinated. We watched it every week because we wanted to know what was going on with everybody. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm sure other writers have used this structure in some way or other. I kind of fell to it. But then it gets interesting. It gets kind of com- like when I got to the point in a drift where the ship's adrift and the tug's going to get the ship, mm-hmm. they have to put some people on board the ship to hook the ship up to the tug. And I realized that, okay, when I'm writing this story, I need to have a character who stays in the tug, but in another character who's on the ship so I can talk about what's happening in the tug and the ship. So, I mean, and I don't do outlines. I just kind of write the story and, yeah. and see how it happened. So anyway, I think it's successful and, and I hope it's, <laughs> hope it's successful. So the third book, Totem, which is 550 pages, really two books in one, right? has, I don't know, maybe eight different characters you're following through. And, and the trick is to have the, I don't have the linear storyline. So it isn't, you know, you're not jumping around from now to the past, you know, so it's. Right, right, right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now, let me ask you a question. If someone starts with Totem first, will they understand it or do they need to start with the first book, second book, third book? Well, that's the thing about just this Kirkus review, which is so refreshing. It's a series. Uh-huh. The way I describe it is it's three separate but linked tales telling one grand story about the Olympic Peninsula. But the truth is that when I had the first two out, Adrift and Strongheart, it's they are separate stories. I mm-hmm. mean, you don't need to read the first one to read the second one. And But then the third one, I thought, well, well, the third one, there's a bunch of backstory in the first two that would enrich the story a little bit for the third one. But right. The Kirkus reviewer said, which was great, was that, you know, while the reader might have a little struggle because of these characters certainly appearing, right? it works as a standalone book. And, the, and that's the point. If it's standalone and someone reads a drift and then they want to read Strongheart or Totem or someone reads Totem and says, you know what? I want to go back and read, you know, and read the other two. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, so. <laughs> that's the way. So it's it's absolutely not set up so that. You have to read so that there's a summary at the start of the book about okay. what happened in the previous book. None of that. They're separate okay. books. Okay, good, good. That's <laughs> good a lot of the same, A lot of the same characters. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think if they read Totem and like it, they are going to want to go back and read the others. Well, I would hope so because there's, there's stuff. Yeah, it's. I mean, if you like the way the writer writes and you like the story, like I have my favorite writers that I just like the way they tell a story. So anyone who reads Totem and likes the way you tell a story is going to want to go back and read the others because they like your way of writing. They like the way you have the story proceed. So they're going to want to go back. So here's the thing. I don't know if this is the time to do this, but I'll explain it. So these books, all these books can be ordered from any independent bookstore in the country. Okay, good. They're not in the bookstores necessarily, but they're on the listing, right? So they just go in and say I want a copy of a drift and they'll they'll order it for you. And I'd like people to do that because I like to support bookstores. Yes, me too. You can also get them on Amazon. Right. right? Okay. In addition, you can get an ebook or a Kindle version of the first two, Strongheart and Adrift, 
right now. Okay. And they're only 99 cents. I reduced the price from $5 to 99 cents because I want people to see as many of these before totem hits as possible. And there'll be a totem ebook too. Now I know being a boomer that I do some ebook reading and it's okay, but I yeah. really like to have a book in my hand. Me too. Me too. I want that in my hand. I do. Yep. And I think that at least for these, but we, uh, Sonia Gerard, who did my book design and cover design is she's good. I had the ideas for what the cover should be. And she turned them into something that really, I think is beautiful and they're linked. They all look the same. So the books are appealing and so on. My challenge is to get bookstores to put them all cover out so people can see them. Yeah. That's hard, but yeah. So back to, so you can, you can get the books at bookstores. You can get the books through Amazon. You can go to my webpage, mm-hmm. which is charliesheldon2.com. Charlie Sheldon number two? Yeah, dot com. Dot com. Okay, good. It's IE, Charlie Sheldon, D-O-N, two, dot com. And on that webpage, list the books and a bunch of other articles and stuff. Or they can just go and, you know, just Google Charlie Sheldon and it'll come up. My webpage will come up. Or they Google, you know, and the thing is, if you Google Strongheart or Adrift, there's mm-hmm. other books with the same title, many, especially oh, yeah, Adrift. yeah. I right. don't think there's any other book with the title Totem that's a fiction book, strangely enough. And, <laughs> but that's okay. Anyway, right, my right. Whole, my, I'm very visual, right? So mm-hmm. here's my image. And it's based on a time when I was a kid. I bicycled when I was 16. Myself, another 16-year-old, a 17-year-old, we bicycled around the Gaspé Peninsula in Canada, 600 miles. Wow. Three miles wow. In, in 1963. And I don't know what my parents were thinking to let us do but that. Back, back then, we, I mean, I raised my kids. They were out doing stuff. When I was raised, I would leave the house Saturday morning. I'd go to a nearby park, and I didn't come home till dinner. My mother didn't know what I was doing. What? But that's the way we were raised. But it was great. It was great. Anyway, so we, we're on this bike trip. And I can remember many places along the road, suddenly, come around the corner and there'd be a little table beside the road with a bunch of pans of French Canadian bread offered on the table with a kid sitting at the table with the bread and you could stop and buy the bread. And so my thinking is visual thinking is like for these books is I'm like the little kid in the side of the road with my books out and all these people are driving by and I'm just getting, I just want people to look at my books and then they might pick them up and get them. Right. Right. Oh (laughs) my gosh. That's why I'm doing these podcasts in hopes that, some of you, you people will look, I don't care. You'll either buy it or you won't, you know, but I just want you to see it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I don't know. I, I think when they hear you talk about the story, it makes them want to go and look up the book and maybe buy at least one, maybe do the Kindle version. If you like it, then move on to something else. I mean, there are some people that only read books on Kindle. I have a sister that does a lot of reading and or, or audio. She, yeah. Or audio. Yeah. A lot of younger people like audio because if they're in the car, they can listen. They don't necessarily have time when they're home. You know, if you're raising a family, get home, it's time for dinner, put the kids to bed. There's no time. So the car is a good place to listen. But I love reading and I like to read right before bed. So I want the book in my hand. And, you know, sometimes it makes puts me to sleep and then takes me a little longer to read. But it's still uh, I like to have that physical book. My hope is and this is a big hope, but. (laughs) Now that I've got all three of them done, Mm -hmm. 
and this is the kind of pitch I'm, ma I'm making to bookstores, which may or may not work. Is I'm saying to, I'm trying to say to bookstores, you know, you could offer these books as like for holiday gift. You could offer them as a set where it's discounted. I mean, if you buy all three of them, it's fifty six dollars to buy all you know eighteen, eighteen, and twenty two, right? But the bookstores could offer them for like forty and still make some money. You know what I mean? Yeah. So then when when it's a fairly substantial gift, but if you if you give somebody a whole series, you know, and say, look, here, you know, yeah. that would be, but you're right. I hope that I didn't want to be caught where the series is so sequential that people won't even look at the third book because they haven't read the first two. Right. Yeah. I think that's yeah. fatal, but they need to be linked. So all I can do is ask that people take a look. And again, the women are all strong women. You know, they don't mess around. They they don't take any prisoners. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Because we good. like strong women. That's good. good. That will appeal to the female audience. Yep. Well, I, that's great. And I actually yep. listed, I've listed, I think, I think in a way they are, it is, a, even though I'm a man, in a way you could argue it is women's fiction because all the women, except for one, who's really a kind of an abused, beaten, she's abused by her husband, essentially. She's being pushed down. But but mm -hmm. the women, Sarah, Myra, Louise, the tugboat operator, even Victoria Olsey, who's the project manager for the mining company, they right. all have their challenges and they're all, you know, they're in a man's world and they have to survive. And boy, do they survive. <laughs> so, oh, that's great. That's great. I love it. Part of the whole thing here is I was trying to turn everything on its head. You know, if you go back to where did modern people come from? I mean, I, my, in the end, the kind of gotcha for me mm -hmm. is this ancient legend that people, you know, have always been here. In the end, you can make the argument that what I'm arguing is a thesis that says that ancient legend is true, and we're all descended from the Native Americans instead of them being descended from us. We could be. I mean, I would never say that their legend is not true. I'm one of those believers that we don't have proof it isn't true, so therefore it could be true. That's right. So, that's right. So, yeah, absolutely. I love it. I love it. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today, Charlie. That you're a different kind of an author than I've interviewed in the past. I've interviewed a few that have written fiction now. Before that, it was mostly all nonfiction writers, but but this this is kind of unique story. So I like it. And I wish you a lot of luck. I hope a lot of my readers, my boomer nation, go out and buy your books so that you get to be more well known and get out there. And who knows, maybe you'll get a movie deal out of it. You never know. Well, these would be these would be unbelievable movies because of all the art, the digital stuff they could do. I mean, I've got whole stories set in the ice age with great animals. I mean, you could, you know, you can you imagine right? <laughs> it would be really great. So who knows? Anyway, yeah. well, thank, thank you. I, I appreciate greatly, you know, you've taken the time to do this. And you're welcome. Again, just go to charliesheldon2.com and that way people can get the detail in the books. And I look forward to when you post this thing. And I thank you. You're welcome. And I'll have Charlie's information in the show notes for people who might be listening in the car or jogging or exercising. Everything's in the show notes. All you have to do is go to kickassboomers.com, click on Charlie's picture and all the show notes pop up. So just in case you forget his last name and you remember Charlie, but not Sheldon, go to the show notes. You'll be able to find everything you need. So thank you so much, Charlie. This was great. I really enjoyed our interview today. Thanks very much. We're glad you have. Thank you. You're welcome. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Kick-Ass Boomers. For more information on today's guest, along with the show notes and other inspiring resources, buzz on over to kickassboomers.com. 
And don't forget to join our kick-ass community on Facebook or LinkedIn to continue the conversation. Be bold, not old.